Propropylol fails to prevent COPD exacerbations. Four sepsis phenotypes may explain the different results across the major sepsis trials, and a paradigm shift in the use of the EMR is required to save lives. Today is November 5th, 2019, and this is Dr. Michael Zagoda for the Spiro Podcast. Block COPD trial group funded by the Department of Defense, you will, as several COPD studies will be coming out of this group. Most recently, they did a randomized trial looking at 40 to 85-year-olds with COPD to receive long-acting metoprolol versus placebo. Prior to this study, there have been no randomized trials looking at beta blockers in COPD. There was some weak data suggesting beta blockers may prevent COPD exacerbations, so they felt it reasonable to study this. In the trial, all patients had severe airflow obstruction with an average FEV1 of about 41% and an increased risk for COPD exacerbations. Patients on beta blockers prior to the enrollment were excluded from the trial. Half received the beta blockers and the other half received placebo. They followed these patients for almost a year. The primary endpoint was time to an exacerbation. They were able to randomize almost over 530 patients. The trial was stopped early because of futility with respect to the primary endpoint and safety concerns. There was no significant difference between the two groups in time to first exacerbation, which was about 200 days for both groups. Not only that, but a sub-analysis showed that metoprolol was actually associated with higher risk of hospitalization due to COPD exacerbation. Non-respiratory side effects were the same between the two groups. There was no significant difference in deaths between the two groups, though the metoprolol group had 11 deaths while the placebo group had 5. Honestly, this is not surprising. It makes sense to me that giving oral beta blockers to patients that we are actively trying to bronchodilate is counterproductive and seems to actually be a little dangerous. In my mind, this trial will make me take caution when starting COPD patients on a beta blocker, and I definitely will not be doing it with the hopes of preventing a COPD exacerbation. I do remember, though, that when beta blockers first came out and became in vogue to help treat CHF, a lot of clinicians scoffed at the idea. Now it is the standard of care. Those scoffers were proven wrong, and I may be too in the future. However, there's no data to really prove this, so I'm not too proud to be proven wrong, but I will definitely need to see at least some supporting data. Spiral Podcast is written for healthcare specialists that practice pulmonary, critical care, and or sleep medicine. We cover a broad range of subjects from the newest recommendations for your clinic, depending diagnostic and therapeutic options for your patients that are on the horizon. From time to time, we will interview thought leaders in our specialty with our two-minute elevator pitch. So, subscribe now to the Spiral Podcast so you can help your patients while being the most informed. I was going through some old notes and came across something I took home from the ATS meeting back in May that I found intriguing. The idea that there are four discernible sepsis phenotypes. In my training, I learned that sepsis was quite protean and could present on a spectrum of severity. In one of the talks I attended, researchers presented the data from the NIH-funded Seneca trial. In short, the Seneca trial looked at a very large group of sepsis patients using a computer algorithm to analyze 29 clinical variables found in the electronic health record of 20,000 patients. These were all within the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center system. They later added another 40,000 patients to validate their initial findings. All cases of sepsis were recognized within six hours of arrival. The mean maximum 24-hour SOFA score was about 3.9. To put that into context, the SOFA score on a day 7 between, say, 0 to 3 had less than a 10% mortality, while 4 to 7 is about 15 to 20% mortality 
and above 8 ranged from over 20 all the way up to 80% mortality. Therefore, the Seneca computer algorithm was looking at an overall population with a baseline in-hospital mortality of about 13%. Okay, now, back to the four phenotypes. The authors describe an alpha, beta, gamma, and delta sepsis phenotype. The alpha phenotype was most common at about 33% of the population and had an in-hospital mortality of only 2%. These patients had the fewest abnormal labs and almost no significant organ dysfunction. Next, the beta type came in weighing at about 27% of the population and was associated with other chronic illnesses and renal dysfunction. Then, the gamma type, also at about 27% of the population, was additionally associated with elevated inflammatory markers and also with pulmonary dysfunction. Lastly, there was the delta group. These were those sepsis patients with severe septic shock and end organ dysfunction, such as elevated lactate or LFTs, and uh, this group had a striking mortality of over 30%. So, what does this all mean, and how does it apply to our bedside management of our sepsis patients? Well, I have to go to clinic. But when I get back, I'll answer that very question. Hey, Mason, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Good, good. Are you hanging out at Chess this week? Absolutely, it's a fantastic event. That's great. What are you most excited about? I'm most excited about that um, couple of things. Number one, the first thing is the education piece. The place, this place is full of great educators who are doing phenomenal things. We're doing a lot of education in the simulation lab, trying to get people to really work at the top of their skill level really excel at what they do so they can enjoy it, they can be good at it, they can really help patients get better um, and really be at the top of their game. So Chess does a phenomenal job with all kinds of offerings in that regards. And I love being around such passionate people who are phenomenal educators. There's so many problems on a day-to-day basis that we're all trying to figure out, figure out like how to solve, whether it be managing patients with COPD or lung cancer or whatever the case is, and none of us has figured out how, figured out how to solve these problems because every place is unique, every institution is unique, every team is unique, and so it's nice to actually get together with really smart people and figure things out together so that we're not all making the same mistakes because mistakes are costly. So we come here together to be around people that are like like missioned, uh, that they all want to, they're all in here to help things get better around where they work and so um we're all kind of i just love being around people like that yes it's amazing to be able to help each other grow and then to know that that's going to go back out into the world and have a real genuine impact on people's lives absolutely you mean you can't put a price on you can't you can't put a price tag on that i think everything these days has been so much about price tag and very little sort of attention towards building up culture building up teams building up expertise and really learning from each other I'm so glad we have passionate physicians like you who are out there trying to make it happen. Thank you so much. Well, I gotta run. This is my floor. All right, I'll see you later. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Great clinic this afternoon. I'll tell you about an interesting patient later in the show. So, time to look at the four phenotypes within the context of the access, the prowess, and the PROCESS trials. As a refresher, remember the ACCESS trial looked at a lipid A derivative to mitigate the inflammation of septic shock versus placebo in severe sepsis. Results? No change in mortality at 28 days. Then came the PROWESS trial. This looked at giving activated protein C, which was a combination anticoagulant and anti-inflammatory mitigator. The activated protein C showed improved mortality in severe sepsis, but with increase in bleeding and hence increase in morbidity and mortality. 
The process trial, however, looked at early goal-directed therapy for septic shock with absolutely no mortality benefit at 60 days. This is the interesting part. Participants in the three aforementioned trials were classified by the four novel sepsis phenotypes. The researchers noted that, quote, some trials may not have been failures. For example, in the process trial, early goal-directed therapy was beneficial for the alpha phenotype, but actually caused harm to the delta phenotype. This is the exact opposite of what I would have had, uh, initially thought. Typically, I would have thought the sicker you are, the more fluids you need, the more dobutamine you might need. Let's go ahead and give a transfusion. However, in fact, this seems to cause harm to the sickest of the sick. So now with this newfound knowledge, how does this play out in our day-to-day -day care of our patients? You see, many healthcare systems have spent a lot of time and money to standardize their sepsis treatment protocols, and many even withhold bonuses if they don't have a sepsis mortality below 17% for all comers. This is a reasonable number, though, but having a number like this assumes that if we follow the medical literature, our outcomes will be improved. Unfortunately, for the last decade, we really haven't been able to move the needle on sepsis outcomes. The Seneca trial shows us that sepsis treatments need to be more patient-specific and ideally sepsis phenotypic-specific. Look, intuitively this makes sense. We don't treat all lung cancer the same, and we don't treat all sleep disorder breathing the same, and we definitely don't treat all chronic cough the same. Sepsis, at its baseline, has too many causes and presentations to force us into a one-treatment-plan-fits-all model. By compelling the use of sepsis treatment protocols, this could quickly become another example of wasted time and money, though with the best of intentions. It appears as though AI-based algorithms could help us better determine which sepsis treatments will help our patients while avoiding those treatments that could actually cause harm, for example. I constantly hear how vitamin C has saved lives in septic shock patients, but the data really doesn't show that. Well, maybe because we aren't asking the right question or looking to use it in the right kind of sepsis. We've all seen these different sepsis treatments work on some patients and not on others, but we have seen it work. I'd love to see a repeat of the above studies in the context of a prospective evaluation based on the UPMC algorithm findings of the four phenotypes with the best therapies being chosen based on those phenotypes and not just based on a diagnosis of, finger quote, sepsis. First, we're going to have to accept that we've handled this wrong for a long, long time. And people have died because of it. Really, really interesting stuff here. In our next segment, I've decided to keep our train of thought on what it was UPMC was doing with the sepsis phenotypes model of thinking. Their research used a rising specialty in medicine referred to as translational bioinformatics. Though this is a relatively young discipline, translational bioinformatics has become a key component of biomedical research in the area of precision medicine. We've all heard more and more about precision medicine. You see, this is a development of high-throughput technologies and electronic health records, which has caused this paradigm shift in both healthcare and in biomedical research. These novel tools and methods are required to convert interestingly and increasingly voluminous data sets into information and actionable knowledge. That's the key, actionable knowledge. As multiple studies are showing us, bioinformatics methods continue to make an actual difference in patients' lives. The infrastructure, information technology, policy, and culture need to catch up with some of the technological advances. If you are responsible to determine policy and procedures and are held accountable to your outcomes in your institution, you must have leadership that is 
all in on this. If not, then you need to get them on board, replace them, or go somewhere that gets it. Not pursuing this with all vigor, based on the amount of data we already have available in our EMR is quite unconscionable. For researchers working at the cutting edge of translational bioinformatics, opportunities abound, and the future looks bright. There could not be a clearer image in our crystal ball of the future of medicine. This is the future of healthcare, responsible to determine policy and procedures or are held accountable to your outcomes in your institution. You must have leadership that is all in on this. If not, then you need to get them on board or replace them or go somewhere that gets it. If you as a physician leader fail to implement a comprehensive, multidisciplinary bioinformatics program, you will be committing career suicide. I did not know until recently that there is even a board certification for medical bioinformatics that many clinicians are now pursuing. I got all my information about all of this at www.aima.org. That's aima.org. For those that choose not to pursue a robust bioinformatics policy with full financial and moral support, or even worse, those that choose to obstruct it are, in my opinion, a health hazard to our communities and should be exposed and replaced. When it comes to this actional bioinformatics, leaders either need to lead, follow, or get out of the way. That's just my opinion. Not sure if you could tell, but I kind of feel a little strongly about this. I do. Atrium Health, one of the largest healthcare systems in the country, is holding their Lung Cancer Summit on November 15, 2019 at the Charlotte Motor Speedway in Concord, North Carolina. This year's summit will feature a variety of state-of-the-art topics, dynamic speakers, and clinical updates in thoracic oncology. Dr. Ed Kim, head of the Levine Cancer Institute's Solid Tumor Oncology Division, will be headlining the conference. He's an outstanding speaker, and I guarantee you'll come away twice as smart as you were before you even got there. CMAs are hard enough to come by and are pretty expensive. But if you attend, you'll be receiving some CMEs, and more vendors than we could even shake a bronchoscope at will be available for networking and discussion. This will really be worth your time. I'm invited to a lot of conferences every year. But this lung cancer conference is one that I refuse to miss. It is not the kind of conference where bench research of alphabet soup tumor markers are presented. It's the kind of conference that will have a direct impact on you and, more importantly, your patients. Don't miss this conference. Openings are still available. Remember, November 15th at the NASCAR Charlotte Motor Speedway in Concord, North Carolina. Heck, you'll even have a chance to go down and drive on the track. So, for more information, why don't you visit our website at spiropodcast.com. That's spiropodcast.com. Now it's time of the show where I get to tell you about something that I like, something that I don't like. For those that have been following my saga of chronic idiopathic urticaria, side effects of steroids, and how I'm trying to make sure that I don't put on a bunch of weight, chosen to go all in on the ketogenic diet. I've actually enjoyed eating keto. I like the ketogenic diet. I've been eating as much as I want and as often as I want, which is perfect when you're on steroids. It's a very high-fat, moderate-protein, low-carb diet. So, last week I mentioned that I'd be checking my labs. At baseline, my HDL has typically been around 35, and my LDL has always been less than 100. After training for a marathon last year, I was able to get my HDL all the way up to about 44. Not great, but better. After being on the ketogenic diet for six weeks, I'm happy to report that my HDL is now 70. My LDL is only 95, and my triglycerides are undetectable. 
taking my HDL from the mid-30s up to 70 while eating bacon, eggs, steak, ham, chili dogs, and pork rinds goes against everything I've been taught. Of course, this is an N of 1, so I shared my lab results with one of my hospitalist colleagues. She told me she's been doing this keto diet thing for about a year now and lost 30 pounds. And the exact same thing happened to her labs. If you really want to know more about a physician's perspective on the ketogenic type of diet, please search for the Low Carb Podcast. That's Low Carb Podcast. Dr. Trow, he's the guy who runs the podcast. When I say that he is a hardcore keto champion, that is an understatement. He's got all the data and all the information you could ever want to know about this type of diet. I was on our multidisciplinary rounds last week in the intensive care unit when I spoke to a chief nutritionist and suggested, hey, how about using a keto diet for some of our morbidly obese patients? She actually chuckled under her breath. <laughs> I then told her I was eating chili dogs, no bun, tuna salad loaded with mayo and bacon and eggs without ever eating any bread, croutons, or pasta. She was appalled. First, she tried to hide her disdain for my diet behind a fake purse-lipped little smile but our emotions bubbled up and for the next 30 minutes, our entire team was subject and lectured on how we all had better focus on a moderate caloric intake diet with low fat, small portions, eight glasses of water every day and 20 minutes of cardio at least three times a week. <laughs> well, I guess I'm not gonna get our nutrition service on board with a ketogenic discharge diet plan for our morbidly obese patients. But you know, I don't blame her for her passionate retort of my diet as it goes against everything she and I have been taught and preached to for about the last 30 years of her career. The inability to change one's thinking is referred to as a cognitive entrenchment, which may be keeping our patients from healthier lives. I'm keeping an open mind, and I hope you will too. Now it's time for something that I don't like. I don't like the caps lock key. Just finished typing up a patient note while looking at my handwritten notes. Of course, the caps lock key was on, and my entire HMP was in all caps. Hmm, now the conundrum. Do I just leave it and move on to the rest of my note? Or do I honor my professional integrity and commitment to proper syntax and grammar? You see, if I leave it, the note now appears as though I'm shouting my entire H&P. And any colleague that reads it and wonder, hmm, why so angry? Or they'll judge me for being too lazy to just go back and fix it knowing that the caps lock bug has bitten everyone. Oh yeah, and our AI bot does not have the ability to search notes that are written in all caps, so... Medically relevant data could be overlooked, and our AI system, it won't even be able to accurately bill then. Well, if I mention this faux pas to anyone else, they'll smile thinking, why didn't you just dictate it? Duh. And they'd be right. I really need to get my dictation microphone fixed. I believe it was about two years ago. I was heading to my second hospital for the day as I was on call that weekend while driving the car in front of me, suddenly slowed without hitting his brakes, then veered off the road before his back tire screeched to a stop. I saw a young man come flying out of the passenger side of the car. He slung open the driver's door as I was slowly passing by him. I saw a man slumped over at the wheel, and the younger man was pulling him from the car. I rolled about another hundred yards before I noticed in my rearview mirror that the young man had started chest compressions. I pulled over, jogged up to them to see what I could do to help. I then instructed the mother and the son and the person in the back seat of the car was on the phone talking to 911, and the ambulance was on the way. As a team, we did BLS until the ambulance arrived, and I had already been talking to the crew in the ambulance on the speakerphone in my pocket. But by this point, they knew what to expect upon arrival. Three shocks and an interosseous line was jammed into his shin, which resulted in a pulse. 
He was loaded in the back of the ambulance and rushed off to the hospital. I had just left. I called the heart cath team from my car, and knowing the patient was in good hands, I went on to round on my patients at that other hospital. Later that afternoon, I went back to check on the man I had helped at the roadside. Turns out that he had a long history of heart disease, and this was not his first roadside BLS rodeo. Fortunately, he was awake, alert, told me that his family was on their way to watch his son graduate. His son was the young man doing the chest compressions. Oh my. He never did get to walk that day across the stage and get his diploma, but he told me he honestly really didn't care. He was just doing it for his dad anyways. Then, about a year after that incident, I was coming off an exhausting call and had been dealing with a lot. A ridiculous EMR transition, the loss of one of my best employees, becoming an empty nester, and my daughter and her husband just took my four grandchildren to Bulgaria to enter the mission field with no intention of returning to the States anytime in the foreseeable future. I was really feeling sorry for myself. I was depressed, tired, and a little burned out. So, I do what every other pulmonologist in my situation would do. I went online, started looking for administrative jobs while grabbing a bite before I went home. A nurse then told me I had one more patient to see. A deep breath. I entered the exam room, and at first I didn't recognize him. But after a brief reintroduction, I remembered. This was the man I helped on the side of the road that day. He then went on to tell me that he planned to come back to see me every year to thank me for saving his life that day. With my mouth suddenly dry, I asked, Why is this so important to you? He told me that it was important to acknowledge the defining moments in one's life as they anchor us to what really matters. After our visit, we shook hands and he left, saying, See you next year. I smiled and waved. After that visit over a year ago, I decided to do a little reflection on my own. Think about my own defining moments in my life and to stop feeling sorry for myself. I decided to set some goals. I was going to lose weight. I was going to run a marathon. And I was going to do it within the next year. At that time, I hated to run. But it was not my fear of having a heart attack that drove me. It was more, it was more of a desire to up my game so I could be a better husband, a better father, and a better physician to my patients. I believe I've accomplished my goals. Guess what? Earlier in the show, I had mentioned that I saw a gentleman in clinic today that I wanted to share a story with you about. Well, this is that story. Today he came to see me, and we chatted. I shared what I had been doing over the last year, and he did the same. Again, he thanked me for saving his life, and he and his son left. Now it's time for me to set some new goals. He said I saved him, but at a time in my career when things were looking a little bleak, and I was burning out. I think maybe he saved me. You've been listening to the Spyro Podcast from Mars Hill Media with Jason Mack, audio engineer. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. If you liked what you heard, it would be great if you would give us a five-star rating as it helps us move up the search results. And uh, tell your friends how to subscribe, too. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Zagoda, and today I'll leave you with a song of inspiration that I believe was specifically written about the electronic medical record. Hope to see you back next week. Check this out. Uh. The white light is